We are continuing our series, Getting Ready for the End of the World. And if you're visiting with us, this is a little bit of a departure from what we do normally. We don't talk a lot about expectations for the end of the world. And if you're hoping to hear details like when it will happen or who, are, who will be involved or what events will take place to bring it about, well, we don't have great clarity on those particular details. You know, the end of the world is the subject of books, movies, television shows, but it's not just something for people of faith. The scientific community keeps a close watch on the end of the world as well. I don't know if you caught what happened this week on Thursday, uh, but the doomsday clock was moved 30 seconds closer to midnight this past Thursday. Now, for those of you who don't know what the doomsday clock is, it's a symbol of the likelihood of a man-made apocalyptic global catastrophe, you know, something like nuclear war. It's been around since 1947, and the closer to midnight it gets, the more likely the scientific community thinks doomsday will come. And on Thursday, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists moved the clock up 30 seconds. And the reasons they gave for doing that was uh, the provocative rhetoric between the United States president and the leader of North Korea, uh, North Korea's continuing nuclear weapon and ballistic missiles tests, and the heightened tensions between the United States and Russia. And so uh, the clock is now at two minutes uh, to midnight. Again, midnight representing the end of civilization as we know it. It's the closest that the doomsday clock has been to midnight since 1953. Um, in this series, we don't want to become preoccupied with the when, who, and how, but we also don't want to be apathetic about it either. We want to challenge ourselves to consider what do we do while we wait for the end. And some of the things that we've talked about quick review, things that we are, uh, want to be doing as we wait, is we want to live with a sense of urgency, with great awareness, with continued faithfulness, with ever-growing wisdom, and as Pastor John mentioned last week, with genuine hope that gives power to keep going. You know, one thing we don't want to do is to be afraid. We don't want to live in fear. And this morning's message is about the Antichrist. And we don't want to be afraid of him like the boogeyman or something like that. But rather, again, what is it we are going to do as we wait? And this morning, we are going to discover the antidote for the Antichrist. Our scripture reader this morning is Emily Meyer. Emily, go ahead and make your way on up to the podium. And as she does so, I'm going to ask you to please stand, if you're able, and face the center of the room. And we read from the center of the room to remind us, to remind us of where scripture is to be in our lives. It is to be the center of our lives, both as individuals and as a community of faith. And so Emily, whenever you are ready, please read from 1 John chapter two. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. 
but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is the, it is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. Emily, thank you very much. You may be seated. Again, when it comes to the Antichrist, the biggest question, it's, it's the who question. Who is the Antichrist? And uh, I have some pictures of people who over the years, they've been suspected of being the Antichrist. Um, last 500 years, uh, it's mainly popes. You know, popes are, are great targets for being the Antichrist. But we have presidents who've been accused of being the Antichrist. We have other world leaders who've been accused of being the Antichrist. And while the Antichrist has been the subject of countless books and movies and speculation, um, the word Antichrist only appears four times. Four times in the entire Bible. And all of them by the same author, John. Uh, the passage that we just heard uh, included two of the references. So that passage just gave you half of the references to the Antichrist by name, at least, in all of Scripture. And before we're done, I'll give you the other two. So you'll have every biblical reference to the Antichrist, at least in name, uh, that's in Scripture. But I want to start with a little background on 1 John chapter 2. And um, there are various teachings about Jesus that are fundamental to the Christian faith. And the one I just want to highlight because it comes into play in, in this passage, it's the teaching on, it's the belief of the, in the incarnation. And the incarnation is Jesus is the eternal Son of God who became human. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who became human. That, in a nutshell, is the incarnation. Now, there was an early church challenge, even as early as the first century, um, and there was this false teaching of the Gnostics. And um, when John wrote those who did not belong to us in the passage we just heard, it is highly likely that it was Gnostic, the Gnostics that he was referring to. Again, they were a problem in the first century at the time that John was writing. And the Gnostics taught something different about Jesus. What the Gnostics taught was that Jesus was just a man and that the Christ was a divine presence who descended upon Jesus at his baptism but left him before the cross. So for, for, so for the Gnostics, Jesus is just a man, and the Christ was not necessarily a messianic term for them, but it really was that, that for them, the Christ was this divine presence for the Gnostics. And so the Gnostics did not believe that the eternal son became human. And I don't want to take the time to detail everything that the Gnostics believed but want to point out that the Gnostics wanted Jesus to fit into their worldview. The Gnostics wanted Jesus to fit their worldview. And for John, this false teaching was a deal breaker. If you taught this, he identified you as an antichrist. 
And again, antichrist, anti meaning opposed or against. And so for John, one way that the antichrists or the antichrist would oppose or be against Jesus is what people taught about him. You see, what we believe about Jesus matters. What we believe about Jesus matters. For John, if you did not believe that Jesus was the Christ, and again, not just a denial of him being the Messiah, but if you are denying the divinity of Christ, that, John says, comes from the Antichrist. This false teaching was one way that the Antichrist opposed Jesus. Verse 22, who is the liar? It is whoever, that, whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. Second John uh, chapter 1, verse 7 uh, says, I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the, de is the deceiver and the Antichrist. That's the third reference to Antichrist in Scripture for those of you keeping track. Last week, Pastor John talked about how there's like 9,000 different Christian denominations. And, and what causes that is differences about how we interpret the Bible. And we have differences on things like baptism, communion, certain spiritual gifts, even things about what we believe about the end times. And here at TFRC, there's lots of us who have different viewpoints about certain parts of the faith. And that's, that's okay. We don't insist that everybody agrees on everything. And what we've kind of discovered is when it comes to theology, what we experience is that a lot of us don't really care that much about theology, which is ironic because as pastors, we spend years of our lives studying theology and then very few people want to talk theology. And so we're prepared to answer all sorts of questions that none of you are really asking. So that makes us feel good, but that's okay. Um, but there are some things that we believe here that define us and are not negotiable. And the incarnation, Jesus being the eternal son of God who became human, that's one of them. That is not negotiable. He's 100% God, 100% man. I understand that's terrible math, but it's really good theology, okay? Some beliefs about Jesus are not negotiable. And because, well, again, what we believe about Jesus matters. And just like the Gnostics wanted Jesus to fit their worldview, our culture wants Jesus to fit our culture's worldview. And if I were to summarize 21st century secular belief about Jesus, if I were to summarize that in one sentence, it would be something along the lines of Jesus was a good teacher who wanted us to love and accept everybody. Jesus was a good teacher who wanted us to love and accept everybody. Now, that doesn't tell us as much about Jesus as it tells us about the time in which we live. Because there are lots of good teachers today who want us to love and accept everybody. Quite frankly, those kinds of teachers are a dime a dozen. You can find them anywhere, okay? That Jesus, the Jesus who's the good teacher, it simply fits the worldview of our culture. That Jesus is simply a reinforcement of the values of our culture. Now. Was Jesus a good teacher? Of course. 
Does Jesus want us to love people? Of course. Does Jesus want us to welcome everybody? Yes. The Reformed Church has some historic documents that we use to clarify our interpretation of Scripture. They're, those documents are called confessions. And one of those confessions is called the Heidelberg Catechism. Some of you are very familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism because you had to study it when you were a kid. And um, the Heidelberg Catechism, it uses a question-answer format. So it asks a question about the faith and it answers the question about the faith. And in the Heidelberg Catechism, there are 129 questions and answers. Now, if I were to take um, some of the question and answers from the Heidelberg Catechism specifically, and for those of you who really wanna take notes, write down these numbers, okay? From the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answers number 35, 42, 43, and 45. 35, 42, 43, and 45. This is what it teaches about Jesus. Jesus is the only eternal Son of God. The Son of God who was and is and is to come. The Son of God became human and lived among us. He died on the cross for our sins so that our sins, our evil desires, our evil actions may no longer rule over us so that we can be free to live the way that God designed us to live in the first place. And death, death is not the end of us, but rather it is the end of our sin. And because Jesus rose from the dead, we have the hope of the resurrection, which not even death can take away. That's what we believe about Jesus. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, the message that I just shared about Jesus doesn't fit in our culture just as it didn't fit in the culture back in Paul's day. But as I mentioned earlier, yesterday we uh, attended the memorial service for John McCandless. And at that memorial service, there was a time where we all stood and sang praise songs. And as we did that, the hope for the resurrection, it was tangible. It was powerful. And you don't get that kind of tangible, powerful hope from a good teacher who just wants us to love everybody. That's not where you get that kind of power. You don't get that kind of hope in moments like those, except from the eternal Son of God who died for us and rose back from the dead. Now look, do you find yourself living in such a way that you're doing things you know aren't right. And no matter how hard you try, no matter how many resolutions you make, they still dictate how you live in some way, shape, or form. And are you tired of that yet? Do you want to live with the power and the wisdom of God to have the eternal hope of the resurrection which nothing can take away? Believe and follow Jesus. Hey, after this service is over, if you want to believe in and follow Jesus, come up front and talk to me. I'll be right over here. Jesus is the power and wisdom of God. What we believe 
about Jesus matters. But there already is a spirit of opposition to Jesus. It comes in, again, back in John's day in the form of false teaching of the Gnostics. But John says that the Antichrist, the Antichrist is coming. And again, the most popular question is who is the Antichrist? But John also says that many Antichrists have already come. And whether it's Antichrist or Antichrist, anti again, it means against, opposed. And John said that they lived in an age of opposition against Jesus, where he said in verse 18, dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming and even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. And then 1 John chapter 4, verse 3. Final reference to the Antichrist, so now you will have them all. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. The opposition is already here. Now, the opposition will be completed with the coming of the Antichrist. Paul refers to a man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians. And many think that the man of lawlessness is the same person John calls the Antichrist. Uh, just from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul writes, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come until a rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Paul talks about the rebellion that is to come. It's another form of opposition. But John says the spirit of the Antichrist, the spirit of opposition is in the world. And we continue to live in an age of opposition against Jesus. And in this series, we want to address two concerns. One is the obsession that some of us have with end times details. And we don't want to become obsessed with discovering who is the Antichrist. We don't think that's the best use of our time as we wait. But the other concern is for people who don't really care at all. Look, if we are going to follow Jesus, we will have real opposition. If you are going to follow Jesus, you will have tangible opposition. And I'm not exactly sure what form that opposition will take, but following Jesus is going to cost us something. If we think that we can just casually follow Jesus in our culture, in our day, that just isn't going to happen. We will be pressured time and time and time again, to compromise our faith, to compromise it to the point that it really isn't even the Christian faith anymore. There has always been an opposition to Jesus, and there will be until Jesus returns. And the opposition to Jesus, it's pervasive. It's everywhere. Let me just give you one example. You know, Jesus called us to be, to self-denial, and to self-sacrifice. Jesus called us. If we're going to follow Jesus, there's a call of self-denial and self-sacrifice. Mark chapter 8. Then he, Jesus, 
called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? You want to follow Jesus? Well, be ready to deny yourself. Be ready to lose your life. Maybe not literally, although maybe literally, but if it's not literally, then to lose your life means at least to live for Jesus and the gospel. Not living for what I want, but for what Jesus wants. Self-denial, self-sacrifice. Now, if the spirit of the Antichrist wanted to oppose those two things, to oppose self-denial and self-sacrifice, what would it offer up instead? Well, what's the opposite of self-denial and self-sacrifice? Well, the opposite is self-indulgence. The opposite is self-centeredness. Now, how often are we encouraged in our day and age to indulge ourselves? Let me ask it this way. Where in our culture aren't we encouraged to indulge ourselves? Anywhere? Television, movies, internet, billboards, we can't turn around without something or someone telling us, indulge yourself this way or take care of yourself that way. It's all about you, for you, 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 you. How pervasive is self-centeredness in our culture? Of course we're self-centered because everywhere we go, we are trained to be focused on us. Self-indulgence. It's an inescapable, unavoidable, undeniable part of what it means to be an American in the 21st century. It's everywhere. Who's going to tell you to deny yourself? Where else are you going to go and hear the message of self-denial and self-sacrifice? We're only going to get that from Jesus. No one else is telling us that. Now look, if you grew up going to church, there's a good chance that as a young child, you were challenged to memorize John 3.16. It's like one of the first things we teach our kids to memorize. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, according to church tradition, the Apostle John wrote that gospel, wrote that verse, as well as the letters of John, which we heard this morning, as well as the book of Revelation. And as a young Jewish boy, he wouldn't have memorized John 3.16 because he hadn't written it yet, okay? He would have memorized something else, okay? As a young Jewish boy, one of the first things that young Jewish kids would have memorized is something that we've actually recited here. It's called the Shema. Okay, it's Jesus interpreted as the greatest commandment, Jesus as well as many others, actually. And again, we recite it here from time to time. And I have the passage of Deuteronomy 6 where you find that up. And again, Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9, it includes the Shema. It's more than that, but we're going to read all of it anyway, okay? I would love for all of us just to recite this together, okay? Starting in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now, last week, Pastor Johnny talked about um, that you can interpret uh, prophecy in the Bible. You can either interpret it literally or you can interpret metaphorically. And, you know, you could probably do both, but literally and metaphorically. Now, if we take the line from what we just read, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Now, if we were to take that literally, as some Jewish people actually do to this day, what they do is they actually will tie parts of Scripture on their hands and on their foreheads. They will literally do that. Okay? Now, but you can also interpret that passage metaphorically. So if we were to interpret that passage metaphorically, what would tying the commands of God on our hands represent? What could that stand for? Think about it. It would stand for, again, I don't think this is rocket science, but it would stand for our hands represent what we do. And so if we are going to tie the commands of God on our hands, that means the commands of God dictate what we do. And if you were to interpret metaphorically tying the commands of God on your forehead, well, what might that represent? Well, our head represents how we think. And so if we're going to tie the commands of God onto our foreheads, well, now the commands of God influence and dictate how we think. So if we wanted to interpret this passage metaphorically, the commands of God should influence what we do and how we think. Now again, the Apostle John knew these verses in all likelihood from the time he was a little boy. Towards the end of his life, that little boy wrote the book of Revelation near the end of his life. And there's a part of Revelation that many associate with the Antichrist. And let me just read that part. It's from Revelation 13. It, the beast, also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. And this calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. And that number is 666. Where is the mark of the beast going to be put? It's going to be put on our hands and on our foreheads. The mark of the beast is in the same two places that the commands of God are supposed to be. That is not a coincidence. No way, no how, you will never ever convince me that these two verses are not connected. It's just not possible. And so if you interpret the mark of the beast literally, well, then it's some kind of tattoo or chip that you put on your hand or forehead. And if that ends up being the case, 
if someone wants to put a tattoo or chip on your hand or in your forehead, you know, just say no. Don't do it, okay? Just refuse something. You know, that's a bad idea. Don't do it, okay? So if that turns out, just say no, we got that covered. It's great. What if we interpret it metaphorically, though? What if the beast, if the mark of the beast isn't a literal mark, but something that marks how we live? And if we don't live a certain way, if we don't think a certain way, if we don't have the same values as the culture, then we are not allowed to participate in the economy of the culture. What if it means that? What would it mean to have the mark of the beast on our hand and on our forehead? Well, now it's the mark of the beast that dictates what we do. Now it's the mark of the beast that dictates how we think. What impacts how you think and how you live? Is it the commands of God? Or is it the mark of the beast? Which mark do you live by? Do we live lives of self-denial? Or do we live lives of self-indulgence? Are we self-sacrificial? Or are we self-centered? Do we live by the word of God who John said became flesh and, and became human and lived among us? Or do we live by the values of the one who opposes Jesus, the Antichrist? Which mark do we live by? The antidote for the Antichrist is actually quite simple. It's overcoming evil with good. We are not to live in fear of the Antichrist who is coming or in fear of the opposition that is already here. We are not to obsess with such details of who or when or how. Regardless of what the opposition may throw at us, we overcome evil with good. Verses 19 to 21 from the passage. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. We have an anointing from the Holy One. We are called to live in accordance with the truth. You want an antidote to the Antichrist? Hear what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. 
Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't forget that it was God's kindness and grace that saves us. We received amazing grace. We live by amazing grace. We overcome evil with good, and God, God will take care of the rest. As Paul said in Thessalonians, the man of lawlessness is doomed to destruction. And so we will remain faithful to the truth and do what is good and what is right. The opposition, whether it's in the past or current or in the future, the opposition is going to lose. As the Apostle Peter instructed us, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And onward in 1 Peter chapter 3, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you may have. But do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Those who oppose us will either see our good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us, or they will speak maliciously against us and be ashamed of their slander. Either way, God wins, the Antichrist loses, and it's the antidote to anything that the Antichrist might do. So fear not, obsess not, but don't be complacent either. We live with a sense of urgency, with great awareness, with continued faithfulness, with ever-growing wisdom, with genuine hope, that gives us power to keep going, and we live to overcome evil with good. Please pray with me. Lord, again, we do thank you for your grace to us and your love for us. And Lord, I just ask that you give each of us the encouragement we need to live out our faith in you in spite of the opposition of either the spirit of the Antichrist or if the Antichrist actually comes during our lives, that, Lord, we would have the strength to be faithful to you regardless of what may happen. And, Lord, I just ask you, again, embolden us to overcome evil with good to continue to fight the good fight and to live such lives um, that glorify your name. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.